The Secret Lives of Architects. Ever wonder what architects are up to when they're not designing new buildings? Well, there's a good chance they're actually engaging in historic preservation of old ones. We spoke with Nikita Reed of Encore Sustainable Design about her career as both an architect and a preservationist, and how she found her passion for these two worlds. Nikita also shared with us some tips on making historic buildings more sustainable, and when an architect might be the right person to call. Sustainable design? More like a good time. Let's have one with PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Nikita Reed co-founded Encore Sustainable Design, LLC, to focus on good design, preservation, and making buildings more sustainable. She's a licensed architect skilled in the design of restoration and adaptive reuse projects. Mrs. Reed is a trained in multiple sustainable platforms, including LEED and Green Globes. She's been a LEED-accredited professional on many new and historic buildings and is well-versed in ways to incorporate sustainable features into these designs. She holds a Bachelor's of Science in Architecture from the University of Virginia and completed her graduate studies at the University of Pennsylvania, where she earned a Master's of Architecture, Master's of Science in Historic Preservation, and a Certificate in Ecological Architecture. Additionally, Nikita serves as Vice President on the Preservation Maryland Board of Directors. Thanks for joining us, Nikita. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. So you are on PreserveCast, which is a podcast, as you know, that is focusing, at least in 2017, on the intersection of technology and historic preservation. And I feel like we couldn't have a better person to talk to about that because your bio basically reads as the intersection of technology (laughs) and historic preservation. Very true. Yeah, I'm excited that this podcast is happening. So so let me ask you, just kind of jump right into this. I mean, what is your background? Did, Did you always know that you were going to be a lead architect? Is that you kind of set out to do something like that? Were you a, a kid that just loved architecture? How did it all come about? Yeah. So I, when I was younger, I used to take the train a lot from DC to Pittsburgh. And um, as you know, there are a lot of train tracks that go through old cities. And so I always found myself imagining, you know, what were these cities when they were vibrant and why did they become dilapidated? And then I would imagine what it would take to make them vibrant again. Um, And so I went to architecture school just because I knew I always had a fascination with existing buildings and wanting to do something in the built environment. Uh, When I realized that architecture school did not teach me anything about existing and historic buildings, uh, I realized I needed to learn more. And so that's part of why I went back to Penn to get my master's in historic preservation. Now, let me ask you just to interrupt there for a second. You say that architecture school really didn't touch on that. No. Is that do you think that's a common experience for a lot of people? I w- yes, because and even when I was at Penn, I found that my architecture, uh, my architecture colleagues, they were very much like, "Oh, why are you a preservationist? Preservationists, they just hold up progress. They're in the way. You know, they're stuck in the past." And then a lot of my preservation colleagues were like, "Oh, architects don't know how to design buildings. Frank Lloyd Wright's buildings leaked." And there was kind of this two separate camps, not realizing that the mix and kind of the intersection of both preservation and architecture is where we need to be focusing because there's more existing and historic buildings in the country 
than there are new buildings. You know, the Architecture 2030 Challenge has this great diagram of, you know, we're going to renovate a certain square footage of buildings, which, which is an astounding number. Then And then we're going to build these new buildings, which is going to be a less number. Anyways, the idea and even the National Trust for Historic Preservation did a great study on comparing, you know, if we were to demolish this historic building and then build a new high-performing building in its place, how long would it take to recoup those carbon impacts and what's the avoided cost of demolition? And there are different stats that basically said if you tore down a historic building and you rebuilt it in a very new, high-performing way, it would still take about 50 to 60 years to recoup the cost of demolition of the historic building. There, and there are other great things in the study that found that basically before air conditioning was invented, before architects forgot how to design with nature, you know, buildings were more sustainable. We had larger windows that we could open. <laughs> Everything wasn't hermetically sealed. We had overhangs to protect building from water infiltration. So it was just a lot of kind of forgetting that happened within architecture. And then it kind of became a split uh, between kind of new architecture and the very Frank Gehry new design. Let's make it swooping and all these crazy, beautiful, but very organic shapes versus the more traditional, well, let's preserve what was there. Uh, so anyways, that's a long way to get back to... Um, when I was in school, I realized that there was this disconnect between what I was being taught in architecture and what I was being taught in preservation, and, need, and there needed to be an intersection. And so then in terms of the green thing, I just it didn't make sense to me that things shouldn't be sustainable. You know, it's great that the building looks good, but if the building is causing harm to the environment, if it's not making sense to the people occupying it, or if it is just so crazy expensive that no one's going to be able to maintain it, then that's a problem. Right. And so you graduate with all of these degrees and, and letters after your name, and, and <laughs> you're the vice president of the Preservation Maryland Board, so I know when we write your name, you, we need lot, lots I of know. space because there's lots of, <laughs> there's lots of cool letters that goes after it. But you come out of your education with that, and do you immediately go into private practice? How did it, how did it work? No. So I, I interned at uh, Vitetta, which was a Philadelphia firm, and got to work on a lot of cool projects up there, like the Philadelphia Museum of Art, as well as uh, Duke Farms in New Jersey, which is a sustainable renovation of um, Doris Duke's, wasn't her home, but the, the Duke family had a home in Hillsborough, New Jersey. They had a lot of homes, I think. Yeah, yeah. this is true. Um, so I did that. And then um, all of my years of undergrad, and even before I went back to I went back to grad school. I worked for Ward Booker, who is my current business partner. Um, but I actually started working for him in undergrad because my mom knew his banker. And so you know, I started as his secretary. And then we just kind of stayed in touch through the years. But after Penn, I went and worked at AECOM for a while, um, or for about almost two years in Roanoke, Virginia. So it was a very different pace going from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania down to Southwest Virginia and Roanoke, but it was fantastic. Uh, I got to work on a lot of different government jobs and sustainability pieces and blending a little bit of the two. Um, and being at AECOM and having the responsibilities that I had there gave me the confidence to and kind of helped me realize that I, hey, I knew what I was doing. Um, and there'd be times when historic preservation consultants would call me at AECOM and then I'd give them the answer, they'd do the work, but then they'd get paid. And I was like, well, I, I could be getting paid. <laughs> Let me wait. Maybe I can try this out and do some things. So then there's a personal tragedy in my life that um, I was able to then get an inheritance and have a financial cushion to go out on my own uh, or, and talk to Ward and start Encore. And so I figured I was young enough to give it a try. And if it didn't work out, worst case scenario, I just get another job. 
and it's it's obviously been been working out and i think that's interesting because a lot of people feel i mean you hear a lot of people say well i would love to make my house you know more efficient more green but it's too expensive i could never afford it and obviously there's a market for this there are people who can afford this and it's not just affording it but also there's sort of a return on investment when you make your already green, I should say, historic building, because the the greenest building is one that's already standing. So you're already taking a green building, in a sense, and making it even greener. And so I'm curious, like, what would what would be sort of a common project that you would undertake that sort of straddles that divide between greening and, and sustainability and a historic building? Um, you know, like, what's a maybe for like a commercial project, what would that look like? Right. So for a commercial project, it's always important, and actually for any project, it's always important to assess what you currently have. Because while I definitely agree that the greenest building is the one that's already built in terms of not having to demolish it and take new virgin reach sources to create something new, we still do have to look at how our buildings are operating. And a lot of times the systems in historic buildings are out of date. You know, the way that our technology is progressing, systems are getting approaching their end of life cycle within 20 to 35 years. So if you have a historic home that hasn't had a, any sort of energy upgrade or is still running the same HVAC system from the 70s and it's not working efficiently, you're not cleaning the filters, you know, it could be time for an upgrade. Right. So if your grandma put in the air conditioner, it's probably right. time to fix it. Most likely. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and so assessing what you currently have is always the first step, you know, so we want to take a look at what systems are running. Are they working properly? Are they leaking? What is the current state of the insulation? So what's insulation in your roof? What's insulation under your floor? Uh, So for instance, if you have a basement that's unoccupied, then you want to make sure that you have insulation below the first floor joist because you want to, you know, you're thinking of the thermal envelope. And if you're not going to occupy a space, then you don't need to condition it. Um, Or you don't, sorry, you don't need to insulate it per se. Right. Of course, it depends on if there's equipment in there. So there's always caveats to all of this. Right. And I think that, uh, just to interject here, I, I think yeah. a lot of people are probably leaning in a little closer to their radios or, or computers right now, as you say that, because it's a frigid, cold day. And so <laughs> the idea of yeah. having a little bit warmer space, I mean, it's not only is this energy efficient, but also it's just going to make your house a little bit more comfortable, right? Exactly. I mean, nobody likes a cold floor. Exactly. And it's one of those things where I, I know a lot of people and windows in particular are always a a point of contention in the preservation circle. Right. Um, and sometimes people get, they get uh, taken advantage of by a salesperson who comes and says, hey, replace your old windows because, you know, your house will be so much warmer. Well, that's not always the case. And then even there have been plenty of studies that show that you lose more heat through poor insulation in the attic and then poor insulation in the walls than you do through the windows. It's something like 10% through the windows versus like 30 to 20% other places of the building. So you always want to get a sense of where can you actually make the best improvement? Because one of the downsides of, um, particularly if you have old historic wood windows, you can get those repaired and then they will last for another, you know, 40, 50, hundred years, depending upon the quality. Whereas if you replace your old historic wood windows with a plastic replacement window, I mean, replacement is in the name of the window. They're letting you know, hey, in 20 years, you're going to have to replace these windows all again. So anyway, so checking your windows. Uh, If you have wood windows and you can't afford to repair them, you can always put storm windows either on the inside or the outside. You just have to be mindful of where you are in the country and what the climate is so that you're not getting um, condensation in the wrong places. Making sure that you caulk around the windows and making sure you caulk around any openings where you can feel air coming in. Imagine if all of the little cracks around your house 
were in one area and it would make a bigger hole, you would want to fix the hole. So, you know, cock around openings, doors, windows, and just see what that's looking like. Um, and then after that, I would say operationally. So some of it's lifestyle habits in terms of making your building more efficient. You know, turn off lights when you're not in rooms, change your refrigerator coils or dust them to make sure that your refrigerator isn't operating harder than it needs to. Um, empty the, your water, water tank. If you have a tanked water heater, make sure that you're emptying it once a year and maintaining it the way it needs to be maintained. Uh, so sometimes a lot of sustainability is the stuff that isn't seen and it's more of the common sense maintenance stuff. Uh, but all of that would help us get into it. It's interesting that, you know, you say common sense, it's, you know, not it, common it, practice, but common not, sense. Not <laughs> common practice, but common sense. And it really, it's almost like, um, when you say, that you know, architects needed to remember to design with nature in mind, and right. that that makes buildings better. I mean, you know, homeowners and property owners also just need to think about common sense things, like you say, if all of the holes around you know your windows or doors were all in one space. I mean, you, of course, you would fix that. Right. Um, but I guess it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. It's easy for people to forget. But those are sort of the, the little changes. But it sounds like even in your architecture practice, where, you know, I think in a lot of people's minds, they think of architects taking on these big challenging projects and, you know, just sort of vastly complex. And it seems like a lot of the things that you're doing um, when it comes to at least this aspect of it and sustainability is making recommendations that maybe are pretty common and mundane, but can make a big difference. Right. And then in terms of like uh, when we actually get into renovating projects or doing additions on buildings or things like that, and then that's when we're getting into, okay, well, how are we siding the addition? And then what kind of insulation are we putting in the walls? What kind of products are we using? Are we making sure that we're using products that have um, low or no volatile organic compounds or VOCs, making sure that products are produced sustainably? And so that could be sustainably could be, do they contain post or pre-consumer recycled content? Are they manufactured within, I guess for lead version four, are they manufactured within a hundred miles of the project site? And just so that way we're not using, we're not using so much energy and fuel to transport the materials from where they are sourced and manufactured to the project site to be installed. Uh, so just taking and account all of those different things. Are we making sure we're using LED lights where possible since they use substantially less wattage and electricity than fluorescent tubes? And I know incandescents are no longer allowed in commercial or in most parts residential, which in, in a sense is great because incandescent lights are much better heaters and they are efficient at producing light. Right, right. So you really take all of that into account when you're kind of working on a project like this. Um, yes. And so... How, how much have you seen the technology associated with all of this change, even in you know your career? Interest of full disclosure, you are, I would say, a, a young professional, right? Is that is that a good way to sure characterize enough, yeah. you? I, okay, I, you can I, still I, claim that. Yeah, that's good. I'm. Uh, well, I guess when I talk to 25 year olds, no, but okay. when I talk to like 40 year olds, yes, yes. <laughs> so you haven't had. I mean, you haven't been at this for 40 years, but Correct. you you've been at it long enough. Have you seen a lot of changes in the technology associated? with some of these things becoming more prevalent or, yeah. you know, a big, a big shift already? Absolutely. And I think the biggest one, or maybe the more noticeable one for me would be LED lights. Right. Because uh, when I came out of UVA in 2006, their LEDs were very much like, oh, well, that's, that's weird. What's that? that? That's a new technology, but it's too sterile. The light's very blue and it's too expensive. No one's really using it. It was, it was much more of a specialized, seen as more of a, a rich person elite thing. Right. Uh, whereas now it's just standard. You know, yeah, I just I just picked up um, six LEDs for my historic property 
you know, just to replace yeah. old old incandescents. And I bought six of them for nine dollars, I think. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> like the price of LEDs has come down tremendously. Kind of like the, you know, when VCRs first came out, they were something like two thousand dollars and that and then before they kind of went extinct, you could get them maybe for like twenty bucks. So it's I feel like the time that technology, particularly with LED and lighting, has changed has been noticeable. Um, I guess full disclosure, I did work at a LED lighting company for a little bit before uh, starting at AECOM. So oh, okay. that was kind of fun. Cool. Um, yeah. So it's, I would say that, but then also the market has changed a bit. Before it used to be sustainability, at least this was my perception, whether or not it's everyone's perception, whatever. But when I was coming out of school, I thought that people were thinking sustainability was kind of a hippie thing. And, oh, you know, it doesn't need to be sustainable. It doesn't matter. But now it's um everyone it seems is understanding the value of it or at least the economics of it. Right. I would say that yeah, I think for a lot of people sustainability is synonymous with economic efficiency or right. affordability even. Right. And I think that was a big shift that needed to happen because, you know, it's unfortunately markets don't change unless there is an economic impetus and a demand for it. So saying, hey, it's good to be sustainable for the planet doesn't really get people to move their feet as much as, hey, this will save you X amount of dollars over this amount of time, and this is why you should do it. Uh, so really changing the conversation from a, hey, it's a feel-good, let's save the planet, to, hey, this makes economic sense as well, and making that more of the reason to go sustainable, I think, helped shift the conversation and helped get more stakeholders involved. And there really has been in a market transformation in terms of what manufacturers are producing. And even with lead version four, one of the big uh, big changes was that now you get extra points for manufacture or for using materials that come from manufacturers who put out HPDs, which are health product declarations, or EPDs, which are environmental product declarations. So now you get points for working with manufacturers who are actually saying what is in their product, making sure that it's third party certified, and letting you know how their products are going to affect the health of the people um, that are using them. So it's there's been a much more of a shift back on the manufacturers to hold them more responsible for producing products in a sustainable manner, which I think has been great. Yeah, that no, that's it. Definitely seems like a, a positive advancement. So we've been talking a, a lot about um, sustainability and, and technology and some of the more common sense components of it. You know, swapping out light bulbs and right. insulating, and and then you said, of course, when you you know are talking about an addition to a historic structure, making sure that. You know, you're using the best uh, materials you can and, and understanding all of that. What about, let's talk a little bit about some of the more maybe controversial technological and sustainability type pieces um, or components sure. that can be um, brought into the historic environment. One that comes to mind, solar panels. Right. Um, and so, right. I, yeah, say- I mean, do you have a lot of experience with that? I mean, because that's something that, you know, it's there. There are a lot of different opinions, particularly within the historic preservation community and within historic districts about solar right. panels. Right. And I would say, so solar panels, um, green roofs, and to some extent, small wind turbines, those are all things that come into play in particular for historic communities. And I, I know that Preservation Maryland, we're starting to have this conversation uh, with other state agencies, or how do we blend needing and recognizing the that renewable energy technology is here and it's coming? And then how do we also make sure that we are not sacrificing our historic view sheds and our historic districts or character? And basically, how do we integrate the two? Um, And so within historic properties, so let's see, when I first started 
I know I remember one project we were working on in Bladensburg where there's this really great solar product that was out where basically it was a rollable solar panel that you could put in between the seams of a standing seam metal roof. Oh, wow. Uh, but the historic commission said no, because like, no, it's going to change the character of the building. And so we didn't move forward with that technology on that project. And so one of the things that has been a little bit contentious is when and where can you use them? And we've had some success on other projects where as long uh, as long as the technology is out of sight and is not having a visual impact on the character of the structure, then right. it's okay. Like a like a roof on the backside of a building or exactly. something like that. Exactly. And so we a lot of the projects that we work on where we're trying to use solar panels, we end up having to do sections through the building and showing, okay, this is someone standing on the street looking up at the roof and showing the sight lines just to prove that, you know, if we put a solar panel on this roof, no one will be able to see it from the street. And it's not going to impact the character. It's out of sight, out of mind. Well, and it's also interesting. I'm sure you've seen them. They sort of floated around social media, but the um, solar panels that the Tesla company yes. has put together, which actually Tesla. mimic yeah. or replace in the, the one that seemed the best to me, you know, just seeing it on a computer, I didn't get to hold it yet, but is the replacement for Slate where mm-hmm. it really almost, I mean, it's it's hard to tell the difference between this solar panel and Slate itself. And I know there there was a flurry of emails between myself and other preservationists in Maryland saying, you know, this is something that our community is going to have to come to grasps with. Absolutely. Are we going to be okay with this? Does this change the the nature, the feature, the identity of these historic structures? And even if it does, is it something we're willing to be okay with because there are other issues at play here. We, we can't just kind of do preservation in, in a bubble and pretend that exactly. the rest of the world doesn't exist out there. Exactly. And that's one of the things that I'm, one of the reasons why I'm excited about preservation. And so I got into preservation because to me, architecture and preservation don't exist separately. Uh, so same way, I can't I can't choose if I am more black or more female. I'm not more of a preservationist or more of an architect. They are interchangeable to me. And just like the the solar panel conversation, like I, one of the reasons why so many house museums went by the wayside is because we realized that preserving something for what it was, as opposed to focusing on what it is and what it could be, is not a sustainable practice because tastes change. No one wants to just keep going to the same old house museum. It has to be functional for the stewards today. Uh, and so preservation, getting involved in the sustainable conversation is fantastic because we need to be there. We need to have a seat at the table to make sure that we're not going to, one, lose our historic resources, but then to also make sure that we remind people that, hey, it's reduce, reuse, then recycle, you know, and in that order. Um, So I think it's good that we're in the conversation, but I'm also curious to see how this will go. And that's one of the questions that I've been kind of struggling with. And so I know the Park Service and one of the um, Secretary of Interior standards, particularly about recreation, um, at what point do we draw the line between, okay, well, we know what was there. And so uh, we're going to reconstruct something. And the case of the slate roof and replacing potentially with the Tesla glass tiles, is it okay if it still kind of mimics what was there, but actually produces more electricity, uh, is more sustainable for the homeowner, and doesn't detract from the historic character? So I think that'll be an interesting conversation going forward. Well, yeah, and I also think, um, and, and I know you probably bump up against this all the time, and probably increasingly so, that the standards which, you know, I guess in the interest of full disclosure, the National Park Service uh, is a, a, a grant funder of this podcast. But, you know, the question is, do the Secretary of the Interior standards um, 
do they still uh, reflect what preservation needs to be today? And also, are they flexible enough to handle the new types of buildings which are now historic? Um, right. You know, I've heard from some preservationists, particularly in places with high concentrations of mid-century modern architecture. You think like a like a Phoenix or something like mm-hmm. that, uh, or you know, a Miami. And there, they're dealing with the issue where, in some cases, you you literally cannot get a replacement of the type of material that was used at the time. So there is no way to get, um, right. you know, the, the the type of aluminum sash or or whatever it might be. Um, no one's making it anymore, and it's not something you can make by hand. It's not like a uh, you know wood balustrade uh, or you know some de- decorative gingerbread. You know, it's it's a it's a very different type of material, and so. Are the standards, you know, are are they able to sort of adapt to that con- that sense of t- changing technology? And I don't know if you've seen that or, or, or bumped up to, against that yourself. A little bit. Uh, one of the other preservation organizations I'm a part of is uh, APTDC, which is the, the D.C. chapter of the Association for Preservation Technology. And at one of our mid-century modern symposiums, maybe two or three years ago, we were having that exact conversation with someone from GSA and also the Park Service and talking about the standards. Uh, and so at that time, the conversation was more of the Park Service and the Secretary of the Interior have been looking at the standards and they'll continue doing so. But at that time, they didn't feel that there needed to be any change to them. It'll be interesting to see how that continues to evolve in coming years, particularly because preservation exists on a sliding scale. So technically 50 years from the date, you know, or 50 years ago from the current date, is eligible. Um, so I think it'll be interesting how technology continues to evolve and how we start also getting into the conversation of, okay, well, what actually needs to be preserved? Right. We were having that that very conversation in this office this morning, and we were talking about you know the potential for getting in, involved in a project that was looking to impact 1960s and 1970s resources. And we were sort of trying to debate whether or not, is that something a preservation group in 2016 should be involved in? And we were saying, well, you know, in 10 years, we would kind of probably look back at this conversation and laugh because right. some of those resources absolutely would be historic. But then it, you do you know, have that that question where it's not everything built in 1973 is going to be historic nor worth saving. Exactly. And where do you draw the line? What is worthy of saving? And it's going to it's going to create a lot of challenges and also challenges that perhaps the preservation community hasn't felt before, because even though it is on that sliding scale, you know, for most of preservation's history, we haven't been preserving things that preservationists have lived through. And right. so now it's, you know, all of a sudden, you know, a preservationist who grew up in this 1970s rancher is being told that that rancher is, is now historic. And, and so that sort of sets up a different kind of discussion and it, and it really changes conversation. So uh, that is going to be exceptionally challenging and, and how the standards adjust and adapt to meet that moment will be interesting. Um, you know, it's, it, I feel like it's going to be something that has to happen. Right. So, you know, as we kind of draw to the conclusion here, if a homeowner or or a commercial property owner, for that matter, is interested in taking on a project to perhaps make their home more sustainable and, and they have a, a, an older historic home um, and they're thinking about doing a project, do you have any just sort of ground rules, advice as, the, as they consider doing something like this? Would you encourage them to seek out the assistance of an architect? So I would say before you even did an architect, I would start with uh, energy audit. And a lot of utilities, I guess, well, a lot of them, a lot of the credits were ending kind of towards the end of 2016. And 
depending upon the incoming administration, they may or may not be extended for energy audit. But there are a lot of companies that will come and do an energy audit of your home to at least give you a full assessment. You know, okay, well, how much insulation is in your roof? What is the blower door test numbers? Where they'll do even uh, thermographic imagery, imaging and taking some pictures inside your house to show you where some things are leaking, what areas are colder. So I'd say even before starting with an architect, start there. Because one of the things, and you know, I love my architects and I am one, but architects like to design. And so if you don't have a sense of what you have, and if you're going to an architect who doesn't have a historic preservation background, they may not understand the holistic nature of the building. Uh, there are sometimes, and we, we've come across this with kind of all professionals, everyone gets very focused in their own silo and they're they are comfortable doing what they do. But for instance, if we had, we've had one project where we had a structural engineer who wasn't familiar with historic buildings come out and do an assessment and they're like, oh, it needs to be condemned. It's not safe. Like it's, it's no, but really it was that structural engineer was not familiar with historic timber sizes and all that stuff. So once we had a structural engineer who knew historic preservation and had done historic assessments come out and look at the building, we got a more accurate assessment. Right. So just like matching, uh, you know, the, the correct uh, mortar to a historic brick, make sure you match the correct engineer to your historic exactly. building. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to use a, a Portland cement engineer well, oh my God, on your historic don't. building. Please don't, because the brick won't be there. <laughs> the mortar <laughs> might be there, but the brick's going to be gone. Um, so I would say start with an energy audit. And then after that, look for a design professional who has familiarity with historic structures and someone who also has the same kind of aesthetics that you're looking for have a sense of what you're looking to do. So is it, a you know, we want to relocate the kitchen. We want to do an extension out the back. We want to do a second floor addition on the top. So just have a sense of what you want. And then the design professional will be able to hear you and then give you what you need. Um, sometimes we have clients who come to us who tell us what they want, but we were able to design it in a way that is different than what they were thinking. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, sometimes people say, hey, I just want this to feel spacious. But that that could be lots and lots of things. Absolutely. And if uh, if someone wants to get in touch with you in particular, how would yeah. they find you? Absolutely. So we have um, our website, uh, which is Encore S is in sustainable design.com. So Encore S design.com, or they can email me uh, Nikita N A K I T A at Encore S design.com. Awesome. And so it's Nikita with an A, not the, not the Russian way. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> and uh, we've been asking everybody who comes on, or almost almost everyone who comes on uh, the podcast, you know, sort sort of a fun question at the end. And since you're an architect, we'll stick with the architecture question. If you could pick out your favorite building in Maryland, what would Ooh. it be? It's a really yeah. it's a tough question. All right, so I'd have to say my two favorite ones. I'm gonna take some liberty on this question. Uh, so it would be the Philip Merrill Environmental Center in Annapolis, and then also Fort Washington, the actual fort on the Potomac River. The actual fort. And and I presume, though, the actual fort, probably not terribly sustainable, probably a lot of energy loss in that building. Probably. Maybe you could help them out there. I think I'll see, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> <laughs> well, we really appreciated having you join us today. Um, We're very well served as an organization to have you as our vice president. And we appreciate not only you joining us today, but all the good work that you're doing to uh, save historic buildings and also make them a little bit greener. So thank you for being with us today, Nikita. Thanks for having me. You don't need to open a history book to find us. 
and available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, presmd.org. This is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service. Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and the Maryland Milestones Heritage Area, and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. This week's episode was produced and engineered by Ben and Stephen Israel. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. You can learn more about them at their website, prettygrittymusic.com, on Facebook or on Twitter at PG underscore Pretty Gritty. To learn more about Preservation Maryland or this week's guest, visit preservationmaryland.org. While there, you can check out our blog and learn about what's current in historic preservation. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Flickr, and Twitter at PreservationMD. And of course, a very special thank you to our listeners. Keep preserving.